Hello, I'm Dan Tomaszewski, and this is the Connecting IT Podcast. And there's a famous professor of uh, psychology professor who focuses on marketing. His name is Dr. Robert Cialdini. He's been doing this for 30, 40 years. And he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Presuasion, which is, I've got to be honest, it's a stinker of a book. Don't bother reading it. But I can sum it up in one sentence, which is <laughs> what goes before affects what comes after. So all of that stuff that you've been sending to people, all of those communications, all that relationship building, it pays off at the right moment, at that moment they're ready to switch, when your colleague phones them up and has a chat with them. And if at that point they're ready to buy, that's the point that you get the conversation and you go on to get the sale. Because most MSPs, and you'll agree with this, Dan, most MSPs, by their own admission, are rubbish at marketing, really, truly rubbish. And it's it's no wonder the, the kind of the, the MSP business model allows it and almost encourages it because you think your average MSP, they're really good at uh, retaining clients. And of course, there's loads and loads of monthly recurring revenue. So you add good retention and monthly recurring revenue, and it is very, very possible to be bad at winning new clients and still have a business 10 years down the line because the money just keeps rolling in. And I, this is what I think encourages most MSPs to be pretty rotten at marketing. Virtually every other sector, you've got to get good at marketing, otherwise you, you fall over. Could you imagine you know, shops or restaurants that weren't good at marketing in some ways? Well, you, you, you can't, they don't exist. <laughs> they need to be as good at marketing as they are at, at doing the work that they do. But for MSPs, you know, insane client retention, lots of recurring revenue, it's almost a recipe for disaster. And when MSPs do think about marketing, often their thoughts are very short term. It's a case of, hey, let's do a bit of Facebook or let's throw some money at Google Ads or maybe I should go on LinkedIn for half an hour. And it's very short term thinking. So the three step marketing strategy you were talking about is what I recommend every single MSP does. And it's I'll tell you what the three steps are and then we'll go back over them. So the three steps are this. Number one, you go and build multiple audiences. Number two you build a relationship with those audiences. And then number three, you commercialize that relationship. Well, uh, it comes down to doing stuff daily, weekly, and monthly. Daily, you need to be posting stuff onto social media. I primarily mean LinkedIn, maybe Facebook if you're on that as well. On a weekly basis, you need to send out an educational email. So that email audience that you built at step one, you send them an educational email week in, week out, and you do this 52 weeks a year. And then monthly, if you've got a bunch of people who are listening to you, why not send them something in the post? And I'm a massive fan of printed newsletters, sending those out on a, on a monthly basis so you can physically get something in their hands. You know, if, if I'm sitting out here going... What are the challenges that MSPs have to take into consideration today before really diving into cybersecurity? Um, and I know this is something that uh, you really focus on, so I'd love to hear your advice to the MSP listeners today. So I think there are a number of challenges, and the first thing I think you have to do is you have to have a mindset of taking what you would view as a challenge and turn it into an opportunity. So as an example, what I mean is one of the challenges is how am I going to manage the liability associated with telling a client that I'm going to be their cyber security support agent? 
Now, you could very easily look at that and step away and say, you know what, I don't want to deal with that. That's that's kind of scary to me. That's a little overwhelming. Or you can look at it as an opportunity to differentiate yourself from the other MSPs out in the market. Uh, the the whole reason why you should be doing you know QBRs, because not only is it to have that relationship with your customer, to let them know about the landscape, you don't ever know who they're talking to. And or when the other person on the other side struggling though that one of their vendors, and it turns into a really good opportunity for you. No, I agree, and and I think that um, if we don't consider who our customers are working with as third party vendors, we as business owners are missing out on an opportunity to grow our business. We know that we will spend an incredible amount of money to gain a brand new customer. We know that we dramatically reduce that cost, marketing and otherwise, when we get a referral from a current customer, when we sell additional services into a current customer. So if we don't leverage that, we're really foolish. We really are. Right. I think you said something that I think sometimes we struggle with is maybe they're not the right fit for me. And it's hard. I mean, you're, we're in a, in a, in a world today where someone could come in and be like, it's a $5,000 monthly reoccurring revenue deal that can change my business. I'm going to take it because I need the money, but is it the right fit for the organization? And I think, uh, I think that's something that I, I hear you and I've heard you say now, that not everybody takes that time to really evaluate, are we the right fit for them? And are they the right fit for us? And uh, I'd like to hear your take on that one first. Sure. So back in 2005, we were having a very difficult time in business. And I was really getting wrapped around the axle of every single deal, every single dollar, and what am I going to do? And I found myself wasting a lot of time. And I remember Angie, who's my business partner, had said to me, you know, you need to think about the theory of next. And what she meant by that was you go into a deal and you evaluate it based on a couple of things. Number one, is this going to be good for Reclamere? And is this also going to be good for the customer? And if you don't get a yes, yes, then you know what? You may need to consider moving on to next. In addition to that, nobody likes to lose a deal, especially me. I'm an incredibly competitive guy. I get really jacked when I when I when I miss a deal, especially, you know, through a debrief if I realize, you know, I misquoted something, I didn't do it correctly. You know, I put a lot of pressure on my shoulders as an owner and and that's just the way that I am. Um, but the reality is that there are certain pieces of business that you just don't want to win and you've got to be courageous enough to be able to accept that. You know, I think one of the comments I made in Engage was you got to know when to fire a customer. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. And some people that are listening may go, this guy's completely and totally off his rocker. Well, you know, every year we evaluate all of our clients through and we do a, a profitability review. And if a client isn't at a certain profitability level, we either A, figure out how to get them where they need to be or we have to figure out a different way in which to service them or they go away because we we can't run our business in a non-profitable way, right? Right. So I think it it comes down to, you've got to be 
you got to be really focused on those things and having those conversations ongoing. We often hear about the three, two, one method, three copies of data, two different media, one of them air gapped and offsite. Uh, I guess, Joe, my question to you is, is this method still relevant uh, for preventing ransomware from impacting backups? Or is there another method that's more effective? You know, the reality, Dan, I, I think the three, two, one rule is as old as it is, um, you have to follow it. And, and to be honest, you know, the, the way that you mentioned air gap for, for one of them being offsite, there's a lot of really good solutions today that handle that without necessarily having to go to a very legacy strategy of taking data offline on tape and things like that. Um, you know, I, I, for any data protection strategy, not just for ransomware, right, but really for anything, you want to make sure that you have the ability to recover locally and quickly, and that's what you want, you know, that local copy for. You gotta get the next one offsite and put it somewhere else, right? That's really your your copy that you're likely gonna handle for compliance, long-term retention, and very likely disaster recovery if you're putting it in a location where you can recover quickly from. It, it is a standard strategy. Uh, most of our customers are following that in a pretty simple way. Uh, and there's lots of solutions in, in making sure you can adhere to that. Not again, not just solving for the ransomware problem. I think where you know it gets a little um, a little nuanced is that you know where does that does that does there need to be a copy that's totally offline, right? And these days you can have very secure copies that actually still can be accessed quickly under the right scenario. You know, first one being is what are some of the common mistakes you see MSPs making uh, that can lead to larger risk um, due to ransomware? Yeah, Dan, uh, it's pretty, I see kind of two common themes here, um, especially when I hear horror stories or whether you want to call it, uh, you, you know, uh, battle stories from MSPs. And really the number one thing is rolling your own solution. While it is definitely cost-effective or it can be cost-effective in some ways, just from a upfront uh, surface level perspective, uh, what ends up happening in many times is you end up exposing yourself to more risk, uh, especially because as we were just talking about, um, if there is a ransomware infection that's uh, spreading throughout the site, and let's say you're, you have your uh, local appliance there and it's running on some type of a Windows solution or something, it's and it doesn't have a, a hardened kernel or it doesn't have some ransomware defense mechanisms built in, you're essentially exposing yourself to that risk. And then in some cases, we've also seen with MSPs that then because they've built the solution themselves where they're replicating that data offsite, that infection will then, the encrypted data will then transmit offsite as well. One of the things I think I see the most right now uh, in this last week is just look at what happened in Texas. Uh, I mean, people look at data centers that are down. You've got businesses that, you know, pipes are bursting and, you know, all their internal stuff. I mean, they didn't plan for that. I mean, we're seeing MSPs in that area or that region say like they're working around the clock right now. And like you said, Joe, you know, having to, to restore, get people up and running uh, and all that, whereas more of that turnkey solution that can give, you know, more efficiency, better process and, you know, get customers up faster because it's, it's a turnkey solution. So I think that's a great point. And, you know, I know it's not ransomware, but what's taking place in Texas is a great example. Uh, you just never know when these types of things are going to roll through and you need to be prepared for it. Why don't we start off a little bit just 
tell the the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background of how you're that kind of the expert and the go-to person now uh, for LinkedIn. You know, it's you know, I have the similar journey to most people that are listening. I was an MSP up till uh, see when's the 2014. So I ran it. I ran a full-blown MSP for 10 years. Started from scratch, made every single marketing mistake that there is. Spent boatloads of cash on every course, every everything that you could think of, uh, and ended up frustrated. Couldn't get anything to work. Um, and really, the LinkedIn stuff came came about really. I'll be honest with you, it came about by accident. I kind of was been on LinkedIn since 2006. So I was an early adopter, messed around with the platform. I get just really didn't see much business use of it uh, for a long time. But I was big on lunch and learns. And and really the the way that LinkedIn came about was, was for me, the light bulb moment was when I was trying to get people booked for our in-person lunch and learns when we were allowed to do that. Um, I was having a hard time getting people registered. So I decided I would go, it was a Wednesday night. I remember it vividly. I, I, I logged in and sent out about 150 personal invitations to people that I was connected with on LinkedIn that I had either met at conferences, had coffee with, or just, you know, I had some type of relationship with. And I went home for the night, didn't think anything of it, came in the next morning. My inbox and LinkedIn was full. I had 20 people registered for our event. And they were all people from that list. That's great. From my LinkedIn list. So it was kind of a light bulb moment for me. Really, the light bulb moment came when I went in my inbox. Because it was one message after another after another of people that said, hey, thanks for inviting me. I really, really appreciate it. Unfortunately, I can't come to this one, but please invite me to the next one. And from a marketing perspective, that's when the light bulb went off for me. Because getting a response Starting a conversation is the hardest thing to do in marketing. And I had like 50, 60 people that had messaged me back and took the time to have a conversation. So we kept that going. So when I sold my MSP, uh, a lot of people, we were booking people in in in-person events and LinkedIn became kind of really, that was the bread and butter of most of the marketing was surrounding LinkedIn prior to selling my MSP. So when I sold, it's a couple months later, people found out that I was available, started requesting me to do LinkedIn training and LinkedIn for MSPs kind of became its own entity. And here we are. And, you know, I was bullied most of my, you know, teenage years all the way up to, to, to I got out of high school. And yes, I can relate to that. But that has nothing to do with what I do. That has nothing really to do with what they do but it's about being a human being. And I think you touched on that, that to me has opened up more engagement opportunities with LinkedIn since COVID because a lot more people are looking to connect with people like that who can tell who get them. They get the fact that it's not all about business and sales. It's about being a human being. Yeah. And it, it's that authentic. I mean, it's just, people want to know you're human. I mean, we all know, we all see titles, we all see companies we work for uh, in all these different places. But really, at the end of the day, uh, I'm in the same boat as you when I look at, you know, people's profiles or things like that. I want to know, like, more about you. Like, am I getting from your post who you are, like who you are as an owner or who you are as a tech? Um, or You know, and I think that that goes a long way and people don't realize it, that that authenticity is is really important. 
it, it is. And people have been starving for it for a long time. All COVID did was just bring that out in the open and make that acceptable to have those conversations and to be a person. What are some of the things that people, you know, if you're an MSP that's on today listening, like what are some things that they can do uh, to help their engagement? Uh, I think uh, there's one thing I always see people post, but then you look and it's like they post time after time after time when there's no engagement. Like what can I do as an MSP to get people engaged in the content? That is a great question, and it's one of those timeless questions. But in order to get engagement on content that you post, you really need to flip that around and look in the mirror as to what type of engagement are you doing on other people's content? Are you participating in conversations? Are you building your network by engaging other people through with those conversations? And that really, and I still, I see this right now, we've been doing some testing even internally. I'm not posting as much content myself, but our engagement rate is up because that's what I'm doing every day is I take that hour from 1130 to 1230 every day and just have conversations. I look for people's posts. I look for ways that I might be able to help people or just engaging on in business conversations. And that has been a great way to boost my engagement, but it, it really starts with what we do with LinkedIn. And it, it starts about other people first. Uh, so there's no hack, there's no, you know, cheesy guru tactic on getting engagement really long-term. That's where it starts. If you're engaging on other people's content, you're exposing other people to your content. Do either of you feel that there are any uh, unique challenges or advantages being a woman in tech? I think that there, I, I tend to look at the positive side of things in general. Um, I think that there are a ton of, of advantages, particularly in marketing and tech. So from my perspective, um, it's, it's interesting because we're the fusion of, of the technology space and marketing. And so typically, um, many times you see women in marketing roles um, with high EQs, high creativity, um, you know, analytics, and, and it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a mix of, of men and women, obviously, in marketing, but, but where, where we're sitting, I posted about it the other day um, because our company is made up majority of women. So there's, you know, over 60% of, of Marketopia is women. And, and I, it's, it's not by design. We're not only trying to hire one or the other. It just is, that's just our makeup. Um, and I, I think it's wonderful because I do think that marketing is a great opportunity to, to get into the tech space as a woman. And, and you can be creative in, in this space and really find your way into, into technology and learning all about it without having to go deep on the technical side, if that may not be um, your natural skill set or something that maybe is even of interest to you. I think a great bridge into the tech space is marketing. And, and I would say sales as well. If you're a great salesperson um, as a woman or you're a great marketer, I think those are both wonderful um, ends to the tech space. And, and marketing is not going anywhere. Uh, sales and technology aren't either. Um, so I think those are all pretty safe bets. And then you find your way after that and, and figure, what, figure out what you do like. I've known a lot of women who started off on either the marketing or the sales side and then fell in love with the technology of it. 
and they're, you know, in product development, or they are actually, you know, going into the engineering side of the house. So it's really, really interesting, but I would say, you know, start somewhere and, and you'll end up falling in love with it and finding your way and navigating um, through it. So I'll start with Andra. I was going to ask you, um, as a female business owner, have you had any experiences that you think are unique to women? And, you know, what kind of advantages or disadvantages have you experienced? Sure. So I'm very excited to be here as well. There's nothing like a good conversation with friends. So I am happy to be here. And, and as far as experiences in this space and in this industry, I think my very first experience as, as a woman in this space would, would be that even thinking about coming into the tech space was an interesting experience for me. Um, at the time, prior to even coming into this industry, I had been in you know, marketing and advertising and business development and strategy in completely different industries. And when I fell into tech, it was interesting to me because I didn't consider myself an IT person. I didn't really know or understand what was, you know, sexy or interesting about the technology industry. And, and I think that was really my first aha moment was really digging in a little bit and, and looking at an industry that I wouldn't have previously. And I don't know if it's because I, you know, I just never really had a, a, an, an into the industry. I never really had a bunch of friends in it before. And when I first looked into it and really understood what it was all about, it was fascinating and, and wildly intriguing. And obviously I fell in love with it. Crystal, I know you have um, sort of a unique role where you work directly with a lot of MSPs who are members of the 20. Are you finding that a lot more women are going into um, tech roles as opposed to the marketing kind of in the past has always been where we are? You know, I wish that were the case. I, I see a few MSB owners who are women that we work with, but really, I mean, I, I would say that they are grossly underrepresented. I think the majority of MSB owners are male. Um, they're more coming about. And, and I agree with Andrew. I think that there has never been a better time to be a woman in technology, especially with people realizing like the impact of diversity and um, just more women supporting each other and more men supporting women. And so I hope to see more come about, but the majority are still men. 